Hey, Tech Policy Grind, Emery back once more to introduce a very internet policy episode of TPG recorded while at State of the Net 2018 last week. On this two-parter, we'll hear from Commissioner Karen Charles Peterson and Dr. Rosalind Layton. Commissioner Karen Charles Peterson is the Commissioner of the Department of Telecommunications and Cable for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Joe and I were thrilled to stream our conversation with Commissioner Charles Peterson live as we had it last week at State of the Net 2018, and we're just as thrilled to be releasing it as a bonus episode of Tech Policy Grind today. We talk about responsible municipal internet regulation, bridging the digital divide, and ways local governments are stepping up in response to the repeal of the open internet order. And coming up right afterwards is our discussion on net neutrality with Dr. Rosalind Layton, who comes down on decidedly different lines of reasoning than Commissioner Peterson. We want to thank both Commissioner Charles Peterson and Dr. Layton for joining us at State of the Net for a spirited discussion about some of the most pressing issues facing internet policy, the state of net neutrality and the digital divide. Keep it tuned right here for the rest of the week, as we've got more excellent interviews from State of the Net 2018, including discussions on fake news with Tech Dirt's Mike Masnick and a survey of the witch's brew of cybersecurity with Dr. Betsy Cooper, Executive Director of Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. So, sit back and enjoy Day 3 of our bonus State of the Net 2018 episodes of Tech Policy Grind with Commissioner Karen Charles Peterson. Hey, Grinders, we are live. This is Emery Roan and, of course, Joe Jerome here at Washington, D.C. for the Internet Education Foundation's State of the Net Conference. It's the fourth conference, and it is the largest Internet policy conference in the country. Sitting next to Emery is uh, Commissioner Karen Charles Peterson. Uh, She is the Commissioner of the Department of Telecommunications and and Cable for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Uh, and she's going to be participating on a panel this afternoon. Wireless, we need a new generation to connect the Internet of Everythings. Um, so, Commissioner Charles Peterson, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And our, I guess our first question is, what exactly do you do, you do at the Department <laughs> of Telecommunications and Cable? So, like my title says, I regulate uh, telecommunications and cable. So, we regulate uh, telephone, wireline service in Massachusetts, and uh, basic service for cable subscribers in Massachusetts. So we don't regulate your bundled packages, okay. um, but if you are a basic service uh, subscriber, so it's mainly the elderly and disabled um, community that sort of rely, they don't have the extended package, sure. um, we regulate that. that uh, and service. how do you regulate that? Yeah. What are they complaining about these days? <laughs> so consumers are, call the department on a whole host of issues. Um, they call us regarding their bills. They call to understand their bill. They call regarding service outages. Um, it's a whole host of issues. Um, sometimes they are working with the provider and they're getting nowhere with the provider and they need us to intercede and to help out. Okay. So what does that look like? Have you had to intercede recently or? We do it every day. Every day? <laughs> every single day. So a consumer can either walk into the department, they can call the department, they can email the department, so they can go online if they have mm-hmm. uh, broadband, they can go online and file a complaint online one of our uh, consumer customer service representatives will collect it and and call the consumer and sort of meter it out. But, um, but yeah, so these complaints come in various ways, like I just explained, and uh, we take them, and depending on what it is, we work with the constituent and we Mm -hmm. work with the the provider to come to some sort of understanding. So if there's a uh, dispute regarding the bill, Um, So let's say a consumer has been paying their bill for a number of months because they're disputing something on the bill. Mm -hmm. We will try to negotiate with the provider 
so that they can get to a place where they can pay their bill and everyone is happy. <laughs> okay, so getting to the topic of your panel, mm-hmm. we're talking about a new generation of wireless. Do you want to talk about that? What does that look like? Why are, what exactly makes the next iterate or the next technology push a whole new generation? Because as you know, um, probably better than I, because you're younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, that everything will be connected to the internet at some point, it's in some way. There are much many more devices on um, the communications network today mm-hmm. than ever before, right? So it's really important to have these discussions and to figure out how government can assist and enable and make it a safe place for folks to enjoy their devices. Do you have a vision for what state gov- states and local governments should be doing in this space? So um, I currently, as you may know, sit on the BDAC, which is the Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee for the FCC. And one of the things that we're discussing is looking at ways communities can work with industry and to, to develop a greater understanding of the wave of technology that's before us, right? Mm -hmm. And how um, to make it easier for industry to work with local communities to bring technology. So I think that there are a lot of panels today that, and maybe our earlier conversation had a little bit of uh, pushing back against the doom and gloom prognosticators. Uh oh. Um, <laughs> what are they saying? There's been a lot of doom and gloom at Save the Net so far. Is, really? I mean, what are they saying? <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was going to be an upbeat, uplifting. Uh, uh, Everything's. <laughs> we're always moving forward. Always exactly. moving forward. But <laughs> that being technology. said, <laughs> technology should be technology should be fun, exciting, you know, shiny, new, and. Well, I want you to. Con- so Convince me to be an Pre- optimist. Prepare me for what I should. Uh... Uh, everything, everything's insecure, and it's all controlled by f- cer- five certain companies. Uh, and if well, not them, then true. the Russians. If that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if not the Russians, then the robots. And right. maybe the robots working for the Russians. Yep. But I mean, that, that's. I want to be optimistic. Sure. I want to be optimistic. So, can you tell me a little bit about how your agency has worked with constituents, or what what sort of activities you or what sort of collaborations you've been working on to give us hope sure so in massachusetts um there are a number of communities believe it or not that don't have cable that doesn't surprise me (laughs) cable as in television cable as in television or cable. cable as in like Cable as a way to get internet. No, cable as in television cable. Okay, well. And as you know... I lived in the middle of a cornfield, and we did not... We never had cable. Right, exactly. (laughs) Right? And so there were, like, roughly 40-some-odd communities in Massachusetts uh, about three years ago that did not have... We're addressing that currently, but that's just getting me to where we're going. Um, That did not have cable. And as you know, that's the primary way that residents get broadband. Right. So what did we do in Massachusetts? We're working with those communities. We're working with providers to try to figure out how we can bring cable service, broadband service, to those communities. Um, And we've entered into a really good working relationship with a number of providers. Uh, But also, there have been a number of municipalities that have decided to go it alone Hmm. and to build their own network. And the Commonwealth is supporting them that way, too. I I love that idea. I mean, you're hearing that uh, sort of in the news a lot right now, Mm -hmm. I feel like, where municipalities are trying to build out their own broadband. They have to, because if they don't, those communities are literally dying on the vine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the digital divide is remarkably, like, terribly huge right now. Considering it's 2018, it always amazes me when I go back 
home and there's whole towns, whole cities without, not cities, but villages. And imagine being a student today, yeah. right? And not being able to get online. Yeah. Or a business. To, or a business, exactly. Can you imagine? Exactly. I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, how, do you know how many re, how much resources that these localities have to put in this sort of project? It so seems, not a lot. Okay. Because these, yeah. are, these are rural communities, right. so there's not a lot of money there. Mm-hmm. So that's why the Commonwealth is stepping up to the plate and assisting. Okay. So I'd love to see this as a model for other states. Uh, how can you... That's how, that's how we are, message. Uh, you always have been, right? Uh, <laughs> exactly. Going back to the pilgrims, but right. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, can you put out some nuts and bolts about what that looks like? How how is the municipality supporting the? Uh, how is how's the state how's supporting, the, state supporting the, sorry. the municipalities? So um, these municipalities are working with the Commonwealth. So the Commonwealth has um, an organization called the Massachusetts Broadband Institute. Okay. As the commissioner for the Department of Telecommunications and Cable, I actually sit on the board okay. of the MBI, okay. Massachusetts Broadband Institute. And what the institute is doing is just working with these towns, these mm-hmm. cities and towns in the western part of the state, um, to figure out, okay, um, are you better situated to have a provider? So it could be a town here that mm-hmm. has no service, but the town over it does have service by Comcast or Charter Communications. Yeah. Yeah. So are you better serviced? You, will you be better service if you just uh, if we asked one of those providers to extend service into your town, or are you isolated, meaning there's no one around you with service, mm-hmm. and for you to go it alone in terms of funding from the Commonwealth hmm. um, to bring service to your community? Um, about ten years ago, um, the Commonwealth used our dollars to create um, the middle mile. So there is this one, two, three network in Massachusetts. Okay. So there is broadband access, but it's just connecting to the middle mile to bring the access to the homes. And right. that's what Massachusetts is doing. Isn't um, that like the, the FCC pushes for like that, that last mile? Exactly. Right? It's the last mile. So is that where 5G comes in? Is that the these new technologies so, are going to be easier instead of laying fiber optics? Or? Yeah, so what we're doing, um, so if a community is going it alone, mm-hmm. if they're providing the service um, without a provider, um, uh, nine times out of ten, it's, it's fiber to the home. Right. So it's not wireless. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there is a wireless program, uh, pilot program in one of our communities, Royalston, Mass. If anyone's listening and is familiar with Massachusetts, Royalston, Mass. Um, has a pilot program. But it, again, it's only two part of the community. It's not to the entire community. So I guess I, you mentioned you sit on FCC's uh, BDAG board. Yeah. Uh, so the FCC has been uh, a politically interesting target or topic of conversation here in D.C. Sure. I, not to put you on the spot, but so what is your relationship with the FCC like uh, and folks over there? So the Commonwealth actually has a good working relationship with the FCC. We file comments every year on a number of proceedings. Um, and like what kind of like what what are you invested in? Is this LifeLock? Is this Lifeline? Lifeline. 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 No worries. <laughs> I, I've got the insecurity on the mind. No, 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 no. So it's funny. Be- I'm sure is a thing. <laughs> because a lot of people get Lifeline confused with the Lifeline service for the elderly. No. So and it's not that. Um, so we do um, interact with the FCC on a number of issues, issues like that one, but also the BDAC. Um, like I said, the Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee, was created um, with a number of stakeholders. Uh, so there are folks from industry on the BDAC. 
There are folks from um, cities and towns across the country um, and state. Um, state office holders as well. Not getting, as many. Is everybody getting along? That's so let me so let me just say no. this: there is there are not as many government officials okay. <laughs> on the BDAC as we would like, because as you can understand, that would make it sure easier. But also, but also take I mean takes time and energy for other people and other state officials. No, elsewhere, absolutely, it's very it's, join. <laughs> no, exactly, um, but. It's important to have um, enough or equal amount of the same voices at the table so that there could be a fair and balanced discussion. Sure. Hmm. So as we talk about broadband deployment across the country, um, if, it, if the discussion is tilted, if it's just industry that's discussing the, about the best way to, to um, deploy, then cities and towns are left out of that discussion and they're... Um, comes a um, it doesn't have to happen but there may be an opportunity for a community to be trampled hmm. and so it's really important to have communities and you know state city local officials at the table so how does that work with the idea of competition and smaller ISPs is there space at this table for yes individual like tiny yes. mom and pop ISPs and what are we doing in order to encourage so that? because there are so many communities across the country that don't have service I would say absolutely there's enough room at the table hmm. I mean because as you can imagine there are some providers that the economics just don't work for them sure. right. to provide there there's not enough population density for them to make it profitable profitable for them to, to, to provide service so I think that there is enough room at the table for um, large medium to small and even extra small um, service providers so do we want to ask a net neutrality question is that, <laughs> uh, I, I, oh, are we, I think we're coming up on a good time so you know I think it's probably we'll save the net neutrality discussion for off air but if you have any questions for uh, Commissioner Charles Peterson or for us for any of the rest of the panels or interviews we'll be doing you can tweet at us at uh, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry with the hashtag SOTN 2018 Commissioner Peterson, Commissioner Charles Peterson, I want to thank you again for joining us. You know, we like to give an opportunity for a final plug or a final point. And thank you for being optimistic. That's yes, nice. honestly, <laughs> you're welcome. It is, it is great. <laughs> is there a, a point you want to leave us on, or uh, just want to plug your panel? I'd love to plug my panel. You have the title there. It's very long. The wireless. Wireless. We need a new generation to connect the internet of, of everything. But also just make a point that um, having state and local government at the table is key. Excellent. In all of these discussions. Great. Well, okay. thank you so much. Thank this has you. Been excellent. Hello, Tech Policy Grind. This is Joseph Jerome alongside Emery Roan. We are here at State of the Net talking to people about a whole wide range of tech policy stuff. And we are pleased to be joined at the moment by Rosalind Layton. Uh, she's a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where she works on telecommunications policy, internet regulation, and privacy. And she was on a panel entitled The Fragmentation of Communications Policy. So I guess my first question to you is, is communications policy fragmenting? And what do we do about that if it is? Well, actually, I think it's Reunifying. All right. Yeah. We went through a very divisive period. Um, in fact, one of the things we talked about on our panel, and probably one of the, you know, this, the, the best thing about State of the Net, it is about bipartisanship and the competition of ideas. And our panel, we started out by well, looking back to 1996 and the Telecom Act. 
And we actually had people who worked on that uh, on the panel. And that was really um, a high point of bipartisanship. Um, and it worked really well for, you know, almost about nine, 19 years. And it sort of fell apart um, with the, uh, the, the FCC during the Obama administration because they broke that um, agreement that was there. And way. things have been fragmenting since then. Now, however, the, the steps that uh, Chairman Ajit Pai has t taken are actually reunifying the parts of the policy. Now, there's no doubt there's splintering going on. You know, there's a number of states that want to create their own net neutrality rules. We didn't talk about that on the panel. But, you know, for the record, that's going to be very difficult because of the preemption. You know, we have a, a federal communications policy for a reason because we don't want to have 50 states with their own Internet rules. I mean, the Internet wouldn't work. Uh, but we also have in the Communications Act, there's rules around governing communications within the state and then interstate commerce. That goes back to our Constitution. Um, that it's not practical for certain kinds of industries where you would regulate on a state-by-state. State. It's a non-starter because the Internet communications come from everywhere and they go everywhere. So it doesn't make sense that you could do state-level uh, net, net, you know, state level net neutrality. The, the bigger, the bigger takeaway, though, was our panel did have a lot of consensus on a need to renew, to look at legislation that we all we recognize there are a number of concerns across the ecosystem, and that um, there's not one regulatory solution that solves it all. I mean, it requires a higher level conversation, and. Um, you know, I mean, one of the points that I made was the FCC hasn't been reauthorized in 30 years. You know, it's it's an appropriate time to look back at the Communications Act. We're at um, yes, tw it's 22 tough to be years optimistic now. about a congressional solution right now. Do you think? I mean, I, I'm I'm I, I'm not pessimistic about it. I'm optimistic in the sense that uh, you know what 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 was important to me is that. You know, an agency that wanted to grab power was, um, you know, Congress came together and said, we don't want to do that. I mean, there is a Congress authorizes the FCC. It has very explicit rules. And I think that the current FCC was recognizing its proper role and returning to what that was. Now, I'm for the will of the people. When you talk about net neutrality rules, there are 50 countries that already have them, that have had them for a long time. All of those countries have done it through legislation. So if you want that kind of solution, you need to go, to go through the will of the people. It's not appropriate that five commissioners make that decision that affects one-fifth of our economy. That is something that should be, it's not clear. You can, I mean, to me it's clear. The statute says the internet should be free and unfettered from regulation. Many people interpret that as, oh, the FCC gets to regulate it. So clearly, there's but some I mean, debate you, about what the statute means. In order to ensure means. that it's free and open, you need some sort of regulation. I don't think so. I mean, I think what you have to, you have to be concerned about, um, you know, what our First Amendment guarantees us is, is freedom of speech and freedom from the government imposing its preferences on, on communication. So if you read the First Amendment, you guys are lawyers, as we know, uh, you have to understand that those kind of regulations where you require that a network treat the tra traffic in one way or another, however good it may sound, neutral or this or that, that is in fact a government imposing how the network should be run. That violates our First Amendment. What our First Amendment protects us from is the government telling private people how to run their network. Me as a consumer, what that means is that I have to value all content the same, and I don't. I don't want to value, you know, the films of the Harvey Weinstein company the same as the, my program for my children. I don't want my money going to provision networks for content that, you know, I'm, that may violate, you know, my beliefs or my, my preferences. You know, the, the way that, uh, you know, what those rules were, get, what 
what, three bright line rules just to... The, what those were doing were those were price controls to favor Silicon Valley, the largest users of the Internet, that take up 70 to 80 percent. Things Because what that means is that all the cost falls on me as the consumer. Those guys, the, the Netflixes and Googles of the world, the Amazons, they're not paying for their use. So if we want to build a network, all the cost falls on me, and they, they're not paying their fair share. Just particularly when I'm not watching the films of Netflix. I don't want to have to pay for the cost to provision the network. So that so it seems like you're just anti-net neutrality at this point, or I guess I guess the onus is on you to define what. Well, you I mean, I earned my, my PhD in the topic, and I'm actually very much in favor of the rules where I've seen them work. I mean, we've had a a very successful form of net neutrality in the Nordic countries for five years, which was done through a multi-stakeholder model. They have codes of conduct. It's what's used in Switzerland today. Japan and South Korea have also had uh, successful uh, frameworks that support innovation Can we as well that a as. Yeah. I mean, I think that yeah. the neutrality, as we understand it, or as it is talked about in America, is, you know, the three bright line rules. Sure. Those are the things that are communicable, that are, you know, I think digestible. And I think that most people at least have, at least the studies that I've shown have seen, support for the three bright line rules right. as an internet theory. When you're talking about successful net neutrality programs in Nordic countries and Asia countries, what does that apply, what does that come out to? What does that look like? Right. So, um... In, in those cases, you actually had instances where, um, you know, Denmark is a great example. It's a country where I live most of the year. Um, the, the telecom operators actually volunteered, and they said, look, we understand that this is a concern. We are going to agree to these set of principles, and we're putting the onus on us. We, they said it to the regulator. They guaranteed to the public. Then they said, you can judge us. We're going to hold up these standards, and we want to prove it to you so you don't have to make the rules yourself. And the regulator, the, the government said, this is great. You know, and they have had a dialogue for that going back to 2011. So is that a self-regulated, or did, did, um, the self, did they just regulate themselves? You know, so so they, they, they would have a, so basically they have a, they have a, um, a, a, a stakeholder group and where um, stakeholders can bring up their concerns. They are allowed to make complaints. Um, How are stakeholders defined? In that so, context? so I mean, anybody who wants to be a stakeholder. Can, I mean, that's what if you've ever been to Internet Governance Forum. Mm -hmm. You know, a stakeholder can be an individual, it can be an organization. There's not a there's not an attempt to define the stakeholder because that might preclude some parties who believe that they are a stakeholder. Mm -hmm. So there are no um, violations on record. Um, you have an extremely vibrant ecosystem in Denmark. A lot of the uh, uh, their apps that are some of the most popular in the world have come from there. A lot of the food delivery apps have, have there, Endomondo, some healthcare. Um, and it's interesting if you compare that period where there was a multi-stakeholder approach adopted compared to something like the Netherlands, which has had hard net neutrality going back to 2012. You, nobody can name a, a Dutch app. There's like not been a flowering, you know, the next Google hasn't come out of the Netherlands. And so, you know, th and this is what we see in a number of countries who signed on to having net neutrality rules, but don't find that their countries now make the innovation well, that they how thought are you, they would. How are you tying net neutrality to innovation? Since it, it's my take that all the content providers, a lot of the startups in Silicon Valley have been at the, the, the charge of supporting net neutrality from the FCC. It's the broadband providers that are opposed and up in arms. and broadband providers in the United States, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. tend to be legacy companies. I don't think they tend to be terribly innovative. So I'm just curious yeah. how you're connecting innovation. So, well, so first of all, there's there's a lot of ways that we can define innovation in a lot of ways, right? So this it's very, yeah. How so, would you define but, innovation? In so it means something, you know, doing new things. 
right? So, um, but, but let's go back to, to what you're saying. We didn't have the hard net neutrality rules until 2015. So all the period prior to that, you know, there were not specific, there were, so all the innovation that we enjoyed actually came out of uh, the bipartisan light touch approach that we talked about at the beginning of, of this session, what we, what well, we talked well, about today. And, that's overstating things. I mean, even the Bush administration was encouraging net right, neutrality. Right, but those were struck down in court. The, the, well, by, those, by ISPs who seem to be... No, well, I don't, they went to the Supreme Court. It was struck down in the, by, the, by the justices, I mean, that, were, that you couldn't do so, this. But, but let me, let me, so let, let me the, answer were, your question. Were, were, was that bad, too, so, then? No, what I'm going to give you... Let me explain to you how I answer the question. What I'm looking at is the statutes that the countries have adopted. And these, okay. the, so if we look at the European countries, the EU today even mm. has rules that say, we want to guarantee the internet as an engine of innovation. The FCC's policy says the same thing. So I said, fine, this is great, because you guys have figured out the magic formula. All we need to do is make these rules, and we'll magically have innovation. So what I want to know is why aren't we... Chile was this country that adopted these hard rules. Can you please name an app from Chile? Like, can you please name an app from these first, con first countries who were first movers? I mean, in the sense, I'm taking them at their word. If they're going to say okay. this, because, I mean, shouldn't we should have a way to measure that the policy works. There should be more innovation coming from the countries with the, quote, hardest rules. And so... Is that not overlooking... The first interest to the market, though? No, so here's... But you're absolutely... So here's my point, is that... The, the peop so the, the policy statements are not recognizing that there are many factors that influence the ecosystem. Okay, you're absolutely right. There are many things that would be there. But to simply say that net neutrality is responsible for all this, there's no way to prove that. And if you look at well, the countries... Not necessarily. I mean, the argument you, for net neutrality is just no, that it is pure, but, pure but innovation. But listen, if you're going to... But that is what many... That's what the statutes say in these various countries. This FCC at the time in 2015, they said in order to, you know, we know that there's a virtuous circle and this is the way that it works. And there's nothing in the academic literature that proves that. There's no hmm. formula. I understand we may, that people may like that, they like that, the way that that sounds, but what I want to see is a scientific formula that would prove it. I want to be able to go to the country that has the... the You're asking a lot of economics, though, right? I mean, Well, no, economics but the economics wasn't done, okay? The F look, the F we know that the FCC during that time was an economics-free zone. This chief economist, that's how he described it. He described the order in that way, okay? So I'm one of the few people who actually went around the world and counted be five years before and five years after rules how many apps in your mobile ecosystem. Now, yes, there are many things like different kinds of networks, different kinds of phones, different languages. But at the, if, if we're really saying that net neutrality creates innovation, we should be able to look at the countries that had the hardest rules for the longest time and that they would have the best results. I compared two similar European countries, Denmark and Netherlands. Denmark took the soft approach. They are doing way better than the Netherlands in terms of prices, competition, number of apps, um, you know, the sophistication of the marketplace. They were the first people to sell unlimited data. They were way ahead. The Netherlands just has not created apps that everybody knows, you know, versus there are games that come out of Denmark that people all over the world have played. So what I'm, what I'm just saying is they didn't have to have hard net neutrality rules in Denmark to make them successful. Now the EU has a law that all the EU countries have to abide by, okay? So it's over and done with. They made a, they did it through the will of the people, they made legislation. Their rules are based, they don't have specific 
throttling paid prioritization blocking rules, but they do have disclosures on speeds. They do have traffic management requirements. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so they have their their set of things. Are there any of those sort of sets of rules that you would support, or? Well, so the the problem is a lot of them are duplicative because there were speed disclosures in most of the countries already. Um, so that you're kind of adding bureaucracy. So for a lot of countries, small European countries, they now have two, three, or four agencies who are certifying the speeds. You know, the Consumer Protection Authority does it, and the telecom regulator does it, and the competition authority. So it's, it's not a good use. If, you're, if your resources are scarce in the mm -hmm. country, if it's only speed disclosures are what matters, that's something that you can do with your uh, competition authority. Because if you make a contract to someone promising XYZ, and then it's not there, you can just sue the person on breach of contract. So that's, if you applied that in the U.S., you only need Federal Trade Commission because you're just enforcing a contract. The, um, but let me go back to your point here. Blocking, no blocking and throttling is, I believe, a First Amendment violation. And the reason, and there are seven petitions now at the Supreme Court. One of them is from um, the guy, co-inventor of Voice Over IP. And he couldn't launch his app during the uh, open internet order period because his app doesn't work without paid prioritization. He has um, invented a technology which puts high definition voice behind social media. So you would hear the comments in real time. And if he can't guarantee the signals, his app doesn't work. So he has a very innovative technology that can't work under the 2015 Obama open internet rules. So he sued the FCC and we're waiting now to hear from Supreme Court whether they'll hear his case. And fundamentally he's going back to you know a lot of the concerns from innovators in the telecom world you know um, who said look we don't want to have voice over IP to be treated like the rotary phone. It's a fundamentally new technology you shouldn't use rules designed for another era onto my technology. And that's his side. I mean, I'm not, you know, so, okay. so that, that's, that's his particular view. So I don't think this issue is, is uh, cut and dry. And um, um, I think that we have to be concerned about any legislation that we make, which is ultimately the, the only way to go here. We do have to balance it with our First Amendment protections. Because as a user, I might say, please block XYZ technology for me. You know, I may request that. I may want to buy a service that blocks uh, spam and malware and, and all these other offensive things. You know, I might say, um, you know, I want, to, I want to have a particular filtered service. And this has been recognized by a number of scholars, particularly uh, Brent Skorup from um, George Mason University. There is a First Amendment um, issue in that the way the open internet order was written, that the ISPs could just opt out. They could simply say, look, I'm offering curated internet service and I'm not offering public internet and these rules don't apply to me. And that would be a very easy cop-out mm -hmm. because... Yes, yeah, and there's like a zero rating end run around the you know, blocking, no throttling. Right. So, and well, the zero rating is another interesting issue because, you know, it goes back to the freedom of to contract. You know, if I, as a consumer, want to buy, you know, I want to have freedom for different kinds of offers in the marketplace. It's, um, there's a lot of valuable, for example, I think that everything.gov should be zero rated. Why shouldn't we be able to access all of the government content online for free? Why do mm -hmm. I have to pay to submit my taxes to IRS? You know, if I want to get health information online, my health provider is willing to pay for that for me. Why should I have to pay for that? I mean, it saves them money if I don't have an asthma attack, mm -hmm. right? That's a, one of the basic cases for, for having price discrimination in the, the broadband access because those 
just for health alone, that we could help people who want to stop smoking, who are getting over cancer, or who are going coping with heart disease. They could be I able. I could be wrong here, but wasn't I mean? Didn't uh, Chairman Wheeler? I mean, they they had a rules release, I believe, that they said that um, zero rating is permitted, but they're going to be watching it. They were watching it closely, but that was a a way of sort of permitting the kind of provided there was like enough disclosure of throttling for those kinds of infrastructure necessary purposes. So the European uh, Commission, the, the, gen the competition authority, they did a 200-page paper on zero rating. It's the comprehensive. They have mm -hmm. looked at it every which way, and they said it doesn't create anti-competitive concerns. So uh, as a person who is interested to help the regulator use the resources wisely, that's not a good choice of them using their resources, considering the whole world of telecom policies that we have to look at, that them spending their time investigating every offer on the marketplace, and there will be thousands that they'd have to look at, and it would also require them monitoring networks, which could potentially violate my privacy. Well, there were some bright line rules. <laughs> yeah, so, 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 I don't, so bright line rules really concerns me, I mean, in the sense that I, and it also creates, um, you know, we think that, oh, we just make bright line rules and all the litigation is done. It creates, there's litigation all over the place now in the European Union because of their what everybody thinks will solve it. And so that's what I'm trying to say. I agree litigation, I mean, legislation's the way to go, but I'm also not optimistic that that resolves everything. I mean, there could be a Supreme Court case here too that, you know, yeah, will, will not, I mean, I, I frankly, I would like them to, to see what do these Supreme Courts say about this in the First Amendment and, uh, you know, th there are other questions, separation of power, um, um, major questions doctrine. There's a number of areas there. So one thing I guess we haven't really touched on, uh, and I'm trying to channel my internet neutrality advocate here. <laughs> well, we haven't talked about the competition angle because sure. you've been discussing that you know as a consumer, this is a contract, it's an ISP, and I should be able to get what I want. Yeah. I think where we all just sort of disagree is the level of competition. So my my simple question to you yeah. is: U.S. Broadband internet access markets mm -hmm. are they competitive? Absolutely. Okay. And getting more so all the time. How do you I define mean, that? So because I'm looking at, at at the ways that you get online. Okay. Okay. Because I'm you know I want to get on. There's so I have half a dozen ways that I can get online. And to me, is, is mobile broadband really an act, uh, like a sufficient for solution the, for, for the for the for, for the things? Work? So let's say, but okay. So you're just saying for what for the business? Well, work. I'm In saying my, for so let's say my mom. Okay, for the kind of things that she does, it's absolutely sufficient. I mean, it also okay. precludes her from being able to see the next big thing that might no, but what I'm trying to say is, but here's a, uh, the other part though. She wants to be able to choose. So, so here's the other thing. Oh, because you know, does she necessarily? Um, does she have to be a video gamer to 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 pass muster in your eyes? I mean, different people are going to do different things online. Okay, so the the groups that I work most with are, let's say, people in developing countries. For them, it's kind of, can I get a free SMS? Can I can I get this health information that I mm -hmm. need? Right, and the best way, the quickest way to do is through mobile broadband. And maybe somebody is 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 delivering it for free. Someone's the the hospital's paying for it. Facebook, whatever the case may be, but. Just because we do one app, that may be enough for some people. The fact that they're well, not... How many Americans do you think are, would be satisfied with purely mobile broadband? Well, let's, let's say this today. Many elderly people who are not online at all that would be able to use Facebook on a tablet that as, as a starting point right, compared to zero and then okay. doing that. Now, what I'm, I'm not trying to make this about lowest common denominator here because we have many various people in different 
different situated in different ways. Right. Lowest common denominator. Right. There. Right. At the but same he, time, you don't but want the, but here's internet the thing. access as a right. right but of the, the rich. other part is, but the other part is, it costs money. So if you can say to people, look, I'm going to give you. There are people today who you can. Let's say money was no object, and we brought them fiber They're to the home. Broadband companies. <laughs> are you giving the interview here? What is this? Okay. It's like a discussion. It's okay. A discussion. Right. But so let's say this. There are many. There are many elderly people today. You, it's it's talking about you can bring the horse to water, and you can't, but you can't make it drink. It doesn't matter if you make it faster or more throughput. They're not going to adopt. If people fundamentally don't think there's anything good on the internet, it doesn't matter to them that they have a better speed connection. So that isn't a good. They would rather have the cash in hand. But weren't the people that were five years ago thinking that there was nothing good on the internet that are now right. able to have Facebook on their tablets, the elderly populations that you're right. speaking but, of? But what I'm trying to say here is, I want to allow the, I want to allow the market forces to get there. I don't want the FCC defining every single person has to have X, Y, Z. Because what do we see during the this this era, this Obama era in that was that the deployment in the rural areas decreased. Who was hurt most? Elderly people who had no connection anyway were even less likely to get online. And this has been shown, you can look up uh, Michelle Connolly, she did great work on the digital divide mm -hmm. that net neutrality didn't help it because those, the marginal companies, we're not talking about the big ISPs, I'm talking about the 4,551 companies who are not the AT&T and Verizons of the world. They're the ones who were hurt because they couldn't get bank loans. The bank said, sorry, you, the FCC can regulate your prices, you lost your business case, we're not lending money to you. So I'm not worried about big companies with armies of lawyers. I'm worried about the marginal ISPs serving rural areas. They, they're they the ones, they, they It just wrote. feels like a, the they're, digital they're, divide then becomes the people that have internet and don't to the people that have full internet and the people that okay. are subsidi or have the subsidized okay. internet. They well, so here's the other point. We've also spent billions of dollars in, in, in subsidies. We have very little to show for it. It hasn't worked. I mean, we also know we've got to fix that part because yeah. the money was going to a lot of companies that didn't make the upgrades or was who knows what happened to it. I would have liked it to go to these old people and let them buy, right, whatever the, mm -hmm. the, the case may be, or go to a, a program at their local library, how do you get online, right? That would have been a great use of the money that didn't go there. I agree right. wholeheartedly, so, wholeheartedly. I mean, so. One, one I other mean, solution. And I mean, and here's the other part, and also as a person who I live in, in Denmark, where you've got 15% of the people are mobile only for broadband. Okay, they choose that because it is, you know, they have multiple, they actually have fiber to the home networks in rural areas, multiple coverage. But because they made a, a, a policy where they wanted a technologically neutral approach, the government isn't deciding that it has to be wired, wireless. They're letting the, what they looked at is to say, as much as possible, we want, they, they led with government solutions. They mm -hmm. said, we want to be able to digitize all of our services online. So what did that do? It forced people to design things in simple ways. So. You know that there's no checks, for example. All the banking is digital. Everyone's using uh, mobile pay, because they they had a, a look at digital first, right? They they led with the service, not with the network. Because people don't adopt networks, they adopt services. So when you take that approach, yeah, the services are built for the networks. Your your service, like the kind of services that you can deploy, are based on the networks, well, right? Or no, I mean in in the sense that in the sense that um, in in this case they would say um, here I'll, I'll put it so. Part of this is, is driven by the high labor cost, right? They don't want to have to pay people to do things in an analog way if you can do it digitally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, nobody's processing paper checks, right? It's all digital. I mean, I know that you guys are millennials. You don't, you never did that <laughs> anyway. But I do remember the days of, of paper checks. So in the sense that, that uh, 
you, if you were going to get any, if you were going to have any kind of business with the government that's done digitally, you can't call your local office. There's nobody answering the phone, so you have to send an email. Mm -hmm. So these kinds of things where you lead with the government digitized the service actually brought everybody online. Those were services that they had to that they had to use. So people went the path of least resistance, which was doing things in a mobile app. They could have done it on a. You can use a computer to do it. You can use a mobile app. I mean. What I'm trying to say here is there are a range of solutions to get there. Mm -hmm. And part, my part of the, my pushback about we must have bright line rules, well, I'm going to say, okay, what are we trying to solve for here? What's the problem that we have to resolve? Now, the, the other... It seems like there's a couple problems. I mean, A, it's general disdain or lack of trust for ISPs. It's a history of at least several prominent high-profile bad examples of right. them doing bad things. Well, but listen, those kind of Title II approach is not going to get you more competition. I mean, what Title II will get you is one network. You're going to get a government monopoly of broadband. I mean, that's what we had under Title II with AT&T. Okay. You had AT&T network managed by the FCC, and what did we get from that? It was so bad that the Department of Justice had to break it up because they overcharged the consumers and the company colluded with the regulator. So I don't want that for the Internet. Mm -hmm. I mean... The, yeah, regulatory capture is obviously a huge it's issue. It's a big deal. I mean, that's and that's what I'm concerned about. I mean, what? I mean, I've got a paper on Federal Trade Commission looking at um, all of the net neutrality concerns and what tools does the FTC have to to address it. And you can look at the the number one issue, which was the AT and T mobility case. Yes. Mm -hmm. That originated in the FTC. And the FCC came along and went after AT&T for the same issue and gave, made a $100 million fine. That They didn't follow through on it, but that originated at the FTC. So there's no magic that the, that the FTC doesn't have the brain power to figure this stuff out. But I think I mean, the so argument might be, might be that the FTC lacks the budgetary power to... Well, here's what you get. You get pound for pound, you get a hell of a lot of, um, of processing. The number one complaint amongst consumers about communications is robocalls. Sure. So that is overwhelmingly the number one complaint. Net neutrality stuff is about 7% of the complaint load at FCC, and most of those are complaints about speeds. Yeah, it can They're be not tough to track. I mean, it can be tough to recognize. But, but, here's, but the, here's the, we don't know if it's, the speed can be related to the device. It isn't necessarily the ISP. It could be the app you're using. It could be the user's configuration. Which would point to like a... Um, it would be tougher to, to rely on that statistic then, that the the throttling and net neutrality complaints are lower. Well, yeah, it's because there's so many more factors. You don't know if it's your device, and you don't know if it's your ISP, but that but, sort of confusion means but that it's you the wrong, have But that's complaints. the wrong approach. I mean, because you're what, what you're trying to say, if you talk about blocking and throttling and pride prioritization, and the issue is the person hasn't properly configured his phone, you have the wrong set of rules to address the consumer complaint. Right. So the, the consumer is being misled that the ISP is doing something bad when the consumer himself hasn't properly configured his phone. Well, I think it's that the issue can be obfuscated in so many ways, right? I mean, it's, it is that the average consumer may lack the understanding to be able to configure their phone so that they don't know whether it's their device or it's the right. ISP. And if we don't have the rules outlining exactly saying what the ISPs can't do, then it just introduces more confusion, as I see it. And I'm just yeah, thinking I mean, of questions. Well, yeah. I'm trying to think. I just downloaded an app, right? Because 
A, it's very hard to determine when you've had a, a net neutrality violation. Um, so what's the app that I just downloaded? Right, uh, some iTunes WeHey, you know, that's allowing me to do spontaneous speed tests all over the place to right. try and they're going to try and do some crowdsourcing as to what right. they think. Right, but, but this is not, it isn't a scientifically accurate measure of the network. What that is measuring is your particular app on your de- choose choice of device. Okay, that isn't telling you about the entire network itself because what you would like to have is an end-to-end speed of what is it. It's impossible to know because the ISP can't sell that to you. You would have to buy, you know, you'd have to contract for that level of service, and that's not what you contract for. You contract for best effort service. So, so this, what I'm trying to say is you, we're, we're taking consumers down a completely wrong path here. You know, what, what we should really be saying is there are many actors, there's many things going on, it's very complex, and don't try to be, you know, con- distracting them by saying the ISP is the, is the problem here because there are many things at play. I mean, if you, you know, all the people who love regulation, they should, you know, they should embrace the world because there will be much more for them if you actually take into account, uh, you know, how the, how the Internet actually works. It's just too easy to reduce it and say, oh, it's the ISP. I mean, you can also look at the other regulators have, have dealt with this. Ofcom in the U.K., they, they did a major study. Um, they looked at every single tool purporting to measure traffic management, okay. and they show scientifically none of them are accurate for exactly the reasons I told you. Because we can't, the network itself is so complex, you can't guarantee, you can't relate it to the ISP. There's so many other things going on. And so you as a regulator, it's, it's not a good use of your time to be doing this. Be- when, when there's so much more good you can be doing addressing what people are really concerned about, which is robocalls, they would like more deployment. I agree with you. I would like to have, I think it would be a great thing that rural areas would have more facilities providers. I'm absolutely I, I am for that. I'm concerned about the creation of an underclass of internet citizens. Well, I mean, if you look at the direction where we've gone from, the prices since we launched the internet have fallen 90%. The speeds have increased about 5,000%. The trend line is positive. The other part of it is we have been consuming, Americans today consume more content per capita than any country, no, including North Korea. We create so, more content than any, cap, any right, country per capita. Right, but what that's also saying is if there's fundamentally a problem of content being blocked, why wouldn't that be shown in the data? Well, how can it possibly be that we're consuming more content all the time per capita, mm-hmm. okay, and then that's allowing for the super users and there's a, a simultaneous problem. I mean, it actually shows you that networks can be doing more with less. I mean, that they keep accommodating, right? And, you know, I mean, I'm actually agreeing with you on a number of fronts. I'd like to see more in rural areas, absolutely. But I don't have, I'm not trying to, what I don't agree to is that it has to be one solution and one speed and that's all that matters. There's many different ways. If you go to Alaska, okay, there's many parts of Alaska that's very remote, expensive to get to. It can cost $100,000 per home. Now, you can say to those Alaskans, I can give you $100,000 cash, or I can bring you fiber to the home. What would the Alaskans say? Okay. <laughs> now, alternatively, I can, I can also say I have a great fixed wireless solution for you, which is being deployed, and maybe it will cost you $1,000. Would you like to have you know, 99 cash and $1,000 you pay? So they're part of innovation and technology is that we figure out how to solve things in different ways. right? So for many areas, it's not practical that everybody has to have, 
you know, a fiber network to the home. Because there's a lot of other things I would like to see in our country that many other things we'd all would like to have. Isn't The Internet's not the only thing. I understand for millennials they may prioritize that above other things. But maybe some people want a school. Maybe some people want, you know, we... If money grew on trees, we would so do it all, right? <laughs> so I, but, so but I agree with your, your premise that we need to, that there should be more and more options available, and we ought to be experimenting in different ways. Yeah. So my my the initial reaction, we actually were speaking um, to Commissioner <laughs> Karen Charles Peterson from the Massachusetts Department of Telecommunications and Cable earlier this yeah. afternoon, yeah. and her response is, we ought to experiment with municipal broadband. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Um, be, so because. Uh, I, what actually Title II was the wolf in sheep's clothing to try to bring up municipal broadband. That was all about finding a way to tax private providers so that you generate a source of revenue to give to municipalities. And the having seen it all over the world, it's actually a case where I wish we would adopt the European Union rules about it because they're very, they have actually done the work to uh, classify the areas where they th there should be for uh, pu um, public investment. Sure. So, for example, you can't put up municipal broadband where there's already private provision. You have to go. You have to prioritize the areas where have no networks at all. So, um, so that's a, I think that okay. when when funds are limited, that mm -hmm. would be the way to go. But there's a lot of concerns that I have about municipal broadband because it's not fair competition. You can't. Private companies don't have the same capabilities to go to, um, you know, to, to go to a to to be able to tax the citizens to recover their investments. They ha if they have a loss, the shareholders have to bear it. So, you know, we also don't have a great track record in terms of, you know, th there's a long term. There's a long way to get a break even on a lot of these projects, and cities have many things that they have to do. They do not necessarily have the advantages to be experts in... But if they want to be, shouldn't they be permitted to try? Yeah, I mean, if that's what that community decides. I mean, but they also, you know, they need full information about the costs. I mean, there's a number of studies that will show, um, you know, it, it's if you're looking at investment, it's going to take 30, 40 years. I think that a lot of cities don't understand that that responsibility, hmm. and and that the and also they have to deal with the sales and marketing. They have to deal with the, the things that are associated, um, well, and, we and also the, the business play out case. Very yes. soon. Well, I mean, we we are seeing it. There are yeah. the studies have been done. Well, Dr. This. Layton, I want to thank you for joining us. I uh, hope I wasn't too contentious. Yeah, no, I don't know if we even covered the, the, the this panel. We went off on the tangent. <laughs> well, <laughs> is there any? What, any well, here, let me just leave, leave you with one line, in case you might want to use. So, what I want to say is great about State of the Net is its bipartisan nature, where it really tries to encourage competition of ideas. I think just as we've talked today, we're trying to challenge ourselves with the best arguments for the various proposals. I think one of our panel there was that we did try to get on the table the competing views on these topics so that the audience can push themselves to think, have I, have I, do I really understand this issue? Um, or have I covered, you know, what's important? What, you know, I want to re-examine what I thought. Was that the right approach? Um, is there a better way to do it? Should mm -hmm. we look at data from other countries? Um, should we try different models? Can we look at, you know, randomized trials for policy? Are there different, how can I be smarter about this? So I think that's what. I think this is a bipartisan problem. Yeah. You know, I think that the But it's a bipartisan opportunity. That. It's Absolutely. a bipartisan opportunity. Absolutely. And you know. on that bombshell, <laughs> I think we will wrap this conversation. But thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Rosalind. I really, My pleasure. Really thank this you, guys. All right.